having been adopted uh, to Jesus Christ as our Lord. Let us go to him in prayer as his children. Dear Father, the fact that we call you Father, to the Father, there is a way to grow closer to the Father, our Father God. And so in this sermon series, as we turn to Matthew uh, 17, we're entering in to this whole theme as Jesus Christ is beginning to speak about the kingdom and everything he speaks about has to do with children. See, he just had the mountaintop experience with his disciples. At the beginning of the chapter, you find him on top of a mountain, shining like light. His clothes were as white as light. There was a cloud of light that overshadowed him, and a voice said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And from that vantage point, we transition into this moment in which now a father petitions Jesus Christ for mercy for his own son, who is oppressed by a demon. As we enter into this text, realize that everything after this will deal with children. Jesus will go on to say there's sons of the king who don't have to pay taxes. He'll say that the disciples will be disputing who's the greatest, and he'll say it's like the one who is like a little child who's greatest in the kingdom. He'll teach about forgiveness and say you need to forgive each other as brothers in Christ, as though you were children in the same family. They'll try to keep children away from Jesus, and he'll call the little ones to him because they're children. And at the very end, a mother will come to him, the mother of James and John, asking for her children that Jesus would rule and reign and they would sit at his right and left in honor. It's all about children. But here is a father coming to Jesus. You'll find in verse 14, it says this, after coming down from the mountain. And when they came to the crowd... A man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. 
and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed by this. This is a father's petition, particularly, of coming to Jesus Christ. And he is asking for mercy. You know what it's like when you have children who suffer and you would do anything to stop it. And this man is doing that. He has a particular confidence in Christ because he thinks going to Jesus about this problem is a sure enough answer. The problem is that his son is seized. The word, Greek word, is nothing more than that, is that he's seized, he's bound, he's oppressed. He can't stand tall. He can't stand straight. He can't be upright. He can't live a life. It's important from the beginning just to say this, of course, is that there is no ancient um, uh, myth or misunderstanding of, of medical procedure in the Scripture so much so that any time a seizure is associated in the ancient world, that it was always attributed to some type of demon as in a really simplistic, uh, mythological kind of way. Right? There's an actually very accessible Greek word uh, for this kind of thing, epilepsia. It's a Greek word that we get the word epileptic. That's not the word used here. The word used here is a man who is seized, who is bound. And yet manifests as a seizure. But you see, even in Matthew 4, 24, there's a clear distinction laid out in the Word of God. And this is so important to see for us as moderns, is that there is a continuum between the spiritual and physical world that we should not ignore. See, in Matthew 4, Jesus' ministry is described as being very powerful and his fame spread throughout all the land. And people brought to him those who were sick and afflicted with various diseases and pains, and those oppressed by demons, and those who had seizures, and those who were paralytics. Right? So the list, you would think, in the way we think as modern people, that list seems a little jumbled up. You just put um, diabetes next to demon demonic uh, uh, oppression. You just put paralytic and seizure next to being oppressed by demons. Right? Now that's a particular bias we have as moderns, which I think the scriptures should correct us to say, no. See, it's all related, but it's not possible for us to discern where the spiritual begins and where the physical ends. The scriptures are saying there's no clear reason to think, of course, here, that seizure is a separate medical issue, of course. And then sometimes there's a spiritual demonic issue as well. And sometimes they're related, and sometimes they're not. You particularly know people who are bothered in mind, bothered or oppressed by what we could say in the scriptural sense, uh, a, a spirit, a spirit of uh, depression, a spirit of angst that just comes upon them. Well, they also have uh, biological indicators for these things. You know, pe people uh, tend to be prone toward uh, sexual lust, some, some more than others. Um, and, and so you can't negate the fact that there are other spiritual entities that live in this world that we do not see, that are opposed to Christ, and therefore your destruction and temptation. And so therefore your temptation toward anxiety, your temptation toward schizophrenia, that is biologically oriented toward your life, is still connected spiritually to an intelligible spiritual being that is also doing evil things and presenting sexual lust to you 
as you're a 15-year-old boy and you get presented with sexual lust. You can't say a demon did it, but you could say there's spiritual realities that are tempting you in that way. See, it's all related. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the invisible spiritual heavens and the earth. The continuation of that continuum. We can't part it. It's like saying, where does the Atlantic Ocean begin and the Pacific Ocean end? You can find a clear distinction on where the two are, but really it's all one body of water. Or you could keep ascending and say, I'll go to the sky, but where does outer space start? Yes, the world we live in is physical, and it's also spiritual. The particular reality here with Jesus is that we're presented with a man, unlike what we just say are seizures, this man has seen his son oppressed by an intelligible force. He's coming to Jesus with this particular problem, and it is to Jesus with this problem because he's already tried Jesus' disciples. The problem, of course, is that his disciples could not heal him. I brought him to your disciples. They could not do anything. They could not heal him. It's important. All the way back from the beginning of the gospel in Matthew 10, the disciples, the apostles particularly, were given a unique authority in Matthew 10, 1 to say, these 12 disciples, he said, I give you all authority over all unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. So this is why it's a problem. They were given unique authority to do this very thing. Because you wonder, why is Jesus so vexed? Why is he so off when they can't do this? Well, it's because they're supposed to do this right now in his ministry. They're supposed to be a witness to the power of the kingdom of the Messiah who is here incarnate in their presence. And they're not able to perform the works particularly given to them in that power when they've already been equipped with the unique authority of God himself. That's the problem. He's bothered by that, and he, he says the problem's deeper than disciples. He said it has to do with the whole generation, a faithless and twisted generation that cannot rely upon the Lord in faith. And so, with a simple word, I mean a simple word, it's one verse. Bring him to me. He rebuked it, and the demon left instantly. When you read, do you not, do you not want that in your life? Do you not want the word of Christ to fall upon your life when you're particularly tried and oppressed by whatever trial you might imagine in your mind now? The one that comes to your mind is that one. The one that's most pressing and painful, a pinch point to the nerves of your soul, there is a particular power in Jesus Christ. Demonstrated here so that if he were to speak a simple word, it would be done. How much more now, you see? Here's the thing. This is Jesus speaking, 
before he offers himself as a ransom, before he sanctifies us by his own death and resurrection, which in Colossians 2.15 says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him by the cross. So if the power he had before the cross was this significant, how much more so by his death and resurrection as a man who's conquered the grave and was never able <clears throat> to be kept down <clears throat> by any unclean spirits that could accuse him as being a sinful, wicked man deserving of hell. He ascended to the heavens in perfect, complete righteousness, and he has disarmed all spiritual authorities and powers by doing this in his own son, Jesus Christ. Now, if he would only just speak a word, if he would only just speak a word, apparently a simple word, be gone, a rebuke, and it is done. This simple word leads <clears throat> to shock for his disciples particularly, and leads them to ask actually a very simple question. Of course, privately, when no one else is around, after um, they've obviously failed and kind of blundered before the whole crowd that was watching, we're told that there was a crowd they come to him and say, why couldn't we do that? Why couldn't we do what you did? Especially when you told us to do what you did. And you gave us the authority to do what you did. This is the center of it all. Because of your little faith. Because you don't have the right faith. There's a lack in them. Some type of lack in the confidence of Christ as the Messiah. Some type of lack in concentration upon Jesus Christ. There's something they don't know. There's something they personally don't trust or believe there's something that they don't agree with. They're not connecting the dots. And they can't appropriate a confidence in the one true Jesus in a way that is needed to be done. Though they've already been given a unique authority over these matters. Do you see the problem here? Even apostolic authority. Even Jesus' very presence in the earth. If you were to walk with him that day, you're still left with nothing better than what you have today. A confidence in who he is, what he says he will do, and a belief that that will be done. See, this lack of confidence or lack of faith in Jesus Christ, the question tends to lean toward quantity. That people appropriate from this verse that there is a not enough faith. There is a lack of measure. They need uh, to fill up their gas tank of faith. They need not three liters, but four liters of faith. They need not five units, but ten units of faith. They have little faith. They need more faith. Right? If you could just increase your faith, if you could just work yourself up into a frenzy and truly, really believe this thing called the gospel, then of course, all the power of heaven and earth would be given to you. There's a tremendous promise given here. It's as though you were to think of faith as money. 
Um, that's obviously <clears throat> not very helpful. One of the most common things people buy, whether online or in the market, the one, the, one of the trillion dollar industry is just called clothing. Clothing and accessories. Uh, the most common thing people buy. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> I wear paper clips to, 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 to work my tie when it's too short for me. <clears throat> so I'm not a, <clears throat> a, a, um, uh, an authority on fashion and design. But uh, someone noticed that. Um, <clears throat> see, this is why you know the prosperity gospel has to be true. Uh, because I was wearing paper clips on my tie, and someone bought me a bunch of paper clips, like 50 of them. I mean, uh, not paper clips, tie clips, tie clips. You know, the fancy, the fancy things. And see, if I don't have enough money to buy really fancy clothes, then you don't get fancy clothes. Right? If you don't have enough faith, you can't get it. Like, there's, there's certain blessings from God that you could have. You just need more faith. And, and Jesus is nothing more than an ATM. Just get more faith. You get more stuff. See, this is the prosperity gospel. And I can say particularly, and it has been my sorrow and my, the bane of my pastoral existence sometimes, is bumping up into the churches in this community and around the area that preach a prosperity gospel. And people coming to me and saying, my loved one was dying of cancer. And the whole church was praying. And they still died. And then the pastor came to me and said, you didn't have enough faith. That's why your family member died. Some people I've talked to, I've heard two stories on that exact account. Separate diagnosis of cancer, separate churches. They all prayed. The person died. The person walked away from Christ, denied the gospel, denied it all. Said it's not true. It's a cult. It's a false religion. No, it's called bad theology. It's called misunderstanding what Jesus is saying. But there is a real danger and ignorant, harmful counsel that if you were to think of faith this way, then of course you have invalidated all of Jesus' miracles. He didn't have enough faith. Everyone he prayed for, everyone he healed, everyone he delivered died. And then he died. So, what does he mean? You have to have more faith. Truly, the center of this story and the center of this sermon is this promise. And it will be my burden pastorally to not turn this promise down one notch. He says this. Whenever Jesus is about ready to say something that's going to shock people and rub them the wrong way, he says, truly, 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 I tell you. Truly, I say to you, please hear this word from God today. If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you may say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Do you believe that promise? Do you believe that word? There's two dangers. The one is an overly rigid kind of cessationist kind of view. The people are convinced Jesus came into the world to provide a good book study. And the church is nothing more 
The kingdom of God is nothing more than some people with pocket protectors and stub noses with thick glasses studying books about Jesus. No. The kingdom of God, in 1 Corinthians 4, 19, is not a matter of talk, but of power. A power. Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is of righteousness and peace and joy in the presence of God and the Holy Spirit. Real, experiential, existential reality of the living God. That is the kingdom of God. It is not a matter of talk. It is a power. Yet the other danger is the demonic teaching of the prosperity gospel. To take this promise and apply it would be nothing more than what Peter has done in the previous chapter in Matthew 16. When Jesus first announced that he would go to the tree, he said particularly he must show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer by the elders and the priests and be killed on the third day rise again. Peter pulled him aside and rebuked him and said, Far be it from you, Lord Jesus. That's not the gospel that I understand. That's not the gospel I heard from the skinny jeans pastor down the road. That's not the prosperity gospel. And then he said, Get behind me, Satan. Satan. See, the partial truth of the prosperity gospel is a teaching of demons. The partial truth of everything that makes it a lie is exactly how Satan deceives There is a reality in which Jesus Christ is full of glory and power and he can do anything. But there is also a reality that it must be through his suffering on the cross. So that if you were to try to find the glory of your life in God, in the gospel, without just suffering of your life to the glory of God in the gospel, you have done nothing more than create a false gospel that is demonic, that is evil. That is a lie. You see, that is the whole point is the reality of suffering sandwiching this promise. Right before he promises about a mustard seed that can move a mountain and that all things would be possible for you, he first said, I must go and die in Jerusalem. And then right after this, what does he say? I must go die in Jerusalem. This great triumphalist promise, this great honor and glory that you can have and domain the world, that everything you do is possible for you, is couched with suffering and death. I joke with some about this. Tremendously, it's, to me, it's tremendously humorous. I don't know if it will be for you. I heard a management technique, someone told me, that if you're managing a corporation or you're a manager of some way, you can use the sandwiching technique, you see. The sandwiching technique is if you have an employee or someone that you need to talk to about a not-so-good issue, you sandwich it with two positives. So you say something really nice, and then you say what you wanted to say, and then, don't worry, you say something nice again. So you could say, Bob, that's a really nice shirt you're wearing today. Then you say, Bob, you're a terrible employee, and uh, your breath smells. But then you say, Bob, I like your shoes. <laughs> and everything's okay. Right? Well, I wouldn't recommend doing it that way. It seems a little disingenuous as Christians. 
But do you see what Jesus has done here? He sandwiched this wonderful great promise with suffering on both ends. That whatever this promise, whatever this promise means, it is spoken by the Christ who is going to the cross. And he did rule the world this way. The mustard seed and the mountain. For he says particularly, if your faith is like a grain of mustard seed, you can say to any mountain, be moved from here to there, and it will be done. will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. The image, of course, <clears throat> of a mountain, and the way ancient Judaism and Jesus' culture would use the word mountain, it always was just a type of whatever it is you could mean, of something that is inconceivable and impossible, and something that is a barrier that is there's no conceivable way to move it. This is a, a burden and a barrier in your life that there's no way it could possibly be done. It is a mountain. You can't move a mountain, and this thing in your life, you cannot move. Whatever that thing is, the purpose of the metaphor is that it's not descript. It's, it's meant to be for things, just general things that are difficult and cannot be moved. There's no power you have to move a mountain. If you started today with a spade shovel, you will never finish by the end of your life. There are certain things you just can not do. These are mountains. And Jesus is saying they can be moved. The impossible thing can be done. And then the mustard seed is nothing more than the image of what is small, what is tiny, what is insignificant, what is discreet, what is something that is not really impressive. But you see here, he says, he rebukes them for their little faith. And then he says, only if you had little faith. That makes you wonder, or it's a hint at least to say, we're not talking about proportions. Because it would make more sense for Jesus to say, of course, you have such little faith, you need elephant faith. You have such little faith, you need titanic faith. He's saying, you have such little faith, you need mustard seed faith. It's not about the proportion. Jesus is not your debit card. Faith is not your debit card and Jesus is not your ATM. You don't need more of it just to withdraw the blessings from Christ. He's saying, no, no, no. What you need is true faith. Even the smallest pinch of it. The smallest size of a mustard seed. The smallest thing that couldn't do much will move a whole mountain if you have it. If you really understand what it means to trust in Christ. See, the difference is not proportion. The difference is not drawing on Christ. As if you could draw on an ATM with all your faith. Is if you just had more money in the bank, you could have more money cash coming your way. And then you could even get tie clips. Who knows? Things could be great. But the reality is of drawing near to Christ. That's the faith. Not drawing on Christ, but drawing near to Christ. It's not a quantity, but a clarity. It's not a level of confidence, but a concentration of that confidence. It's not a proportion, but actually, most particularly, it is a prayer. A direction toward him. You see, in Mark 9, Mark gives us the same exact story. But he tells it a little differently. He gives us a more clear understanding. He says in Mark 9.29, the disciples come to him and say, why couldn't we cast it out? Mark's answer was, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. That is, 
What does it mean to have little faith? It means to not draw near to the Lord in prayer. That's it. Any mountain in your life, any difficulty that you have, should be matched with prayer. Intense prayer, some translations say prayer and fasting, not a prayer where you're just saying, Lord, please. A prayer where you stop eating. A prayer where you fall on your face. A prayer where you draw near to God and discern the will of the Lord. That is, there is a contentment to prayer in the presence of God over extended period of time. Listen, God is not an ATM. This is not a machine. This is not calculus. He is a person. If you spend an hour with him, you will have greater fellowship with him. If you spend five minutes with one of your friends, you're a friend. If you spend five hours with one of your friends, it's a great friend. If you spend five minutes with God in prayer, you have prayed to God for five minutes. If you spend five hours with God in prayer, you have fellowship with a living and true God who is more person than you are person, and you know him better, and you know your life better for it, and you know his will for you better for it, and you know the mountains in your life, and you have a sense in which ones should be moved, and you start pushing and playing with them in prayer, and certain things open up, certain realities come to play. There is a power to this. There is a power to having a true faith in Christ that is living because he is a relational God. You don't just hold out your faith to him as if this was a transaction. You use that faith to concentrate on him only. And by looking at him only, intently, pain has a wonderful way of doing this. If you are in pain and trial, you might actually stop eating. You might actually fall on your face. And you might actually draw closer to God than you ever had in your life. That would mean you moved to not having little faith. But you develop a strong, confident faith over certain various things that you could never know God's ultimate will but who answer those prayers and manifest his power in ways that it would be appropriate to say he has moved mountains in my life. My husband loves the Lord for the first time in our marriage. My children, X, Y, Z. My job, my company. I want it all to the glory of God. I want him to do remarkable things to the glory of God. Do you see? This is what Jesus means by little faith. Just previously, the last time he rebuked someone for little faith, it was Peter. Peter was walking on water because he had confidence in Christ. But his confidence lost concentration. He looked to the winds and waves, we're told, and he began to sink. And he said, Lord, save me. And the Lord reached out and grabbed him. And then Jesus said, Oh, you of little faith, why did you look away? You had confidence, but you stopped looking to me. You were trying to draw power from me, but you weren't drawing near to me. Therefore, you had no big faith. You started sinking in the water, even though you were doing something quite remarkable. Drawing near to God. This is the promise that's given. This is what it means. That there is a certain close communion with God. There is a power to godliness. You realize the apostles were given the authority to cast out demons. As though it was just an ATM kind of thing. You just have this authority. You can go cast out demons whenever you want. Just with your pinky finger. No. No. See? He says, no, no, no. You can't do it that way. Some of these demons only come out through prayer. 
You can have the authority of Christ placed on your life. But you must draw near to him in godliness. There is a certain power to godliness. There is a certain power to communion and walking with God and being existentially holy. To having the mind of Christ. To be able to speak like Christ. To be able to think like Christ. To be able to look at your whole life and all the questions of you don't know exactly where God's will is and everything. But having a certain sanctity to your consciousness in which you can actually see the mountains in your life and discern, yes, I think that mountain should be coming down. I will pray toward that end. Because it's all about the kingdom. And then these promises come true. And of course, all the way this could happen to be your very death and suffering, and trial, and cancer, and death, just like it was for Jesus. But incrementally, the only purpose we have for our life is to advance the kingdom of God. When it's all about his kingdom, his rule, his reign, this is where mountains fall down. The reason mountains move in scripture is because the Lord is king. And anything that is there to glorify his kingship makes the mountains bow. That's why in Isaiah 40, a voice cried in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Let every valley be lifted up and let every mountain be made low. That is, if you can pray not for your own delight, but if you can pray that in every aspect of your life, you will make a way for the lordship of Christ to be manifested into the world, this promise is for you. If you can pray in any aspect of your life that the lordship of Jesus Christ would be prepared, that your heart would prepare a way for the Lord to walk on a paved road, that every mountain, that every barrier, to that end, it will be moved. The promise stands. Jesus is saying, nothing will be impossible for you if you pray that way. The mountains will be made low and the valleys will be made high. That if you have faith like a mustard seed, it must be so. It's all because of the cross. To end, consider this reality of all the promises he's offered you. For this is not the prosperity gospel. This is the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of Jesus Christ. That all these promises must be understood in the context of Jesus Christ's lordship over all life. And yes, the peace and joy and fellowship in the Holy Spirit that is there for you. And yes, almost all the apostles were martyred and died. But they walked with power and godliness. And their prosperity will be for a thousand generations. Seek first the kingdom. And his righteousness, Jesus promised, and all resource will be added to you as you prepare the way of the Lord's lordship in your life. Ask, it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you as you prepare the way of the Lord's lordship in your life. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a mustard seed, any mountain can be moved. For Jesus' kingdom will win the day. The old prophecy is that the mountain of Zion will be the highest mountain of all other mountains. And all the nations will flow up to that mountain. Every other mountain will be made low. And even the rough places of our heart will be smoothed. And for that end, the very power of heaven will accomplish it.
And every promise stands true in Christ. Dear Father God, it is this reality that we have when we come to the cross. We understand that you have suffered. We understand that you had answers denied you in prayer. We understand that all our prayers will not be answered. But we understand too, Lord, as we draw near to you, as we seek you for hours, not minutes, as we seek you more than food itself, that you will work powerfully in us, Lord, to will and accomplish your good pleasure. That your kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. And Father, to that end we pray, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. In our hearts, in this church, in this country. For no one, not even the demons themselves, may resist you. Please cleanse us by your word. In Jesus' name, amen.